what's going on in the future hopes for treatment for macular degeneration. So, Dr. Boyer. Judy, thank you very much. Um, I'm going to try to take you through some of the treatments we've had in the past, some of treatments that people in the audience may have actually experienced themselves, and go on to what the future holds for us, which is kind of exciting. Um, I'm going to discuss a lot of studies, and I, I just want to take this opportunity to tell you that not all studies do work. Uh, we're involved in a lot of clinical trials, and you need to be aware that just because something shows a little bit of improvement that it doesn't necessarily mean that long-term you'll benefit from it. Age-related macular degeneration is a leading cause of blindness, legal blindness, in the United States in patients above the age of 50. And unfortunately, it increases as we get older. Um, there are two subgroups. We're going to talk about each subgroup because the treatments are totally different. The most common is dry macular degeneration, and it affects about 85% of the patients with macular degeneration. About 15% of the patients have wet macular degeneration. Wet macular degeneration um, means that the patients have abnormal blood vessels or they're leaking, and it's causing a severe amount of visual decrease, much more than the patients with dry. And I want to emphasize to you, because your doctor may have said, well, you've got dry macular degeneration. It does not mean you're going to lose vision. You may have a couple of small drusen and stay like that for a long period of time. And as I'll show you, many times patients will stay stable for long periods of time with no visual loss and still carry that diagnosis. There are multiple factors that increase your risk for the development of macular degeneration. Increasing age, the white race, female gender. Heredity plays a huge role. You know, five years ago, if we had this, or six years ago, if we talked about the heredity of macular degeneration, I'd say, well, they've isolated one gene, the fibulin gene, it accounts for about 7% of patients. Now we can find genes associated with macular degeneration almost in about 75% of the patients, and that's increasing every day. There are some modifiable lifestyle Changes, smoking, obesity, and your diet can alter macular degeneration. Smoking is the most consistent, modifiable risk factor for AMD. And if you look at, at studies that have been done, it shows that if you smoke, your risk of developing macular degeneration is very high. So any members of the family who smoke, and if you have members that, and you have macular degeneration, you want to encourage them to stop not for anything else but to avoid developing uh, wet macular degeneration. As I indicated in the last uh, three to four years, there's been approximately 10 complement components associated with AMD. This is the latest um, list of them, and it's actually uh, just as a 2009 complement factor C5 has been related, and I'll go through that because that's where most of the research is going to happen in the future. I don't know how many of you actually have AMD or how many of you are here because one of your, your spouse may have it or a family member may have it, but AMD significantly decreases the quality of life. It, it not only affects, you know, your vision, but it affects your, your overall well-being, your mental health and um, your ability to do things. In fact, there's a quality of life survey that they do, and the quality of life survey 
is where they, they ask patients questions as to, you know, what they're capable of doing and, and what the patients with perfect vision would have or perfect health and what the patients who don't have perfect health. And if you look here, congestive heart failure is here, cataract um, is a little bit, even AIDS, then chronic renal failure, it's very, very um, bad, and then complete blindness. And you can see that patients rated having subfoveal choroidal neovascularization worse than having symptomatic AIDS. So it's a significant chronic disease that affects your entire body and causes depression. So we talked about the emerging risk factors that we can try to alter. It's important that you understand that their geographic atrophy is a form of dry macular degeneration that we'll discuss. And it's very common in patients as they get older. About 1.5% of patients in general have it, with about 1.75 million uh, people being affected. Um, there's about 15% of the white women population, because women are more greatly affected than men, over the age of 80 have neovascular AMD or geographic atrophy. There are 7 million people that have drusen that are large enough to qualify for a grade 3, um, and as I show you. So this is what age-related macular degeneration does. In the top left hand, we see an eye that has a fugal drusen. It gets worse over the period of time, and then it can go on to wet macular degeneration, or it can develop areas of what we call atrophy. The wet macular degeneration, if left untreated, gets a large scar, and the area of atrophy can progress and become larger, and the patients can lose vision. So we obviously want to protect and stop patients from developing this from wet macular degeneration to large scar, and that's what we're going to talk about. This is what a patient with severe age-related macular degeneration will have. My mother has severe macular degeneration. It never ceases to amaze me that this woman who literally has count fingers vision in each eye can find lint on my jacket when I come in, but... <laughs> But you can see she has no vision, or the person would have no vision here, but they do have a little bit of peripheral vision. And depending on the size of the defect will depend on how much peripheral vision they have. So the vision loss, they have decreased contrast sensitivity and a central spot. These are the blind spots that patients have. As I indicated, it's going to increase over the period of time in, in the year 2000. 1.75 million people are said to be afflicted with wet macular degeneration or geographic atrophy. That number will go to close to 3 million in the year 2020. So this is an increasing epidemic, and, and we can alter it to a certain degree by losing weight and eating healthy. There have been studies that have been shown to be helpful um, in preventing progression to advanced macular degeneration. Advanced macular degeneration, just to remind you, is geographic atrophy or wet macular degeneration. The age-related eye disease study, the ARED study, talked about the use of vitamins. There's lutein, and there are treatments that we have, and there's potential treatments we'll discuss. So early detection is very important. How do you detect it early? You've got to close one eye and check. You're looking for distortion or blind spots in the, in the vision. You need to check yourself every other day or every day, especially if you have it in one eye. If you have it in one eye, your risk of developing in the other eyes about 8 to 12 percent. Lifestyle modification, smoking cessation, exercise, maintaining blood pressure and proper nutrition are very, very important. 
There's a lot of things that play a role in the development of AMD. We talked about age, genetics, and environment, and we'll talk about now nutritional considerations. There's a lot of support available in the literature, the role of nutrition in preventing progression to advanced AMD. Fruits and vegetables high in vitamin C, E, selenium, and creatinoids. Those are uh, dark leafy green vegetables like spinach, kale, collard green, egg yolks. That's high in, in uh, lutein and zeaxanthin. Um, are all very important. And, and when you look at studies that have been done in people who eat a lot of fish, a lot of fruits and vegetables, they have a lower incidence of developing this. So you can modify it. And about 12, 14 years ago, there was a study done called the ARED study, age-related eye disease study, looking to see if vitamins would be able to modify this. The AREDS one looked at a group. They divided into four basic groups, a group that took placebo, a group that took antioxidants alone, a group that took zinc alone, and a group that had combined zinc and antioxidants. And lo and behold, what they found was about a 25% difference between uh, advancement between the group that took the vitamins. Now, it's very important to point out here that this line is people who have stage 2, category 2, which is very minimal degree of change. And as you can see, those people did not go on to developing any problem in the seven years that they were followed. So a lot of times people come in, they have maybe a very small, fine drusen. They're not stage 3. And they'll ask me, should I be on vitamins? And the answer is probably, but we don't really know. Because a study to do that might take 20 years, and that would be almost impossible. But if you had stage 3 drusen, where you had literally one drusen greater than 125 microns in size, it was significant decrease in progression uh, to stage 4. Here's the difference. It's about 25%. And 70% just with antioxidants, zinc, 21%. And 25% using a combination. So we do recommend in patients who do have dry macrogeneration that they do take antioxidant vitamins. Now, the antioxidants may be changing, and I'll talk about AREDS too that our office is now doing and looking at and the reasons for that. So we do recommend that you t eat healthy, um, take the vitamins, and monitor yourself. Lutein is um, one of those things that has been studied um, uh, briefly, uh, a friend of mine, Dan Schwartz, up in San Francisco, looked at a VA study, and it, he actually showed that patients who took supplements of lutein actually had some slight visual improvement. There are other people who haven't shown that, but certainly people who eat food substances high in lutein have a much lower incidence of developing the problem. Um, the reason is lutein is uh, pigment in the macular area, and you can actually, by ingesting large amounts of lutein, increase the pigment. When light comes into the retina, it doesn't form radical species as much. So there's no, the reaction's blunted from light, and for that reason, they feel it may be beneficial. So it was, it was considered such interesting information that the AREDS-2 study was started. AREDS-1 was the vitamin study. AREDS-2 is a little different vitamin. And they're trying to see if they can improve upon that. So what they did is they took out the beta carotene and they put in lutein and zeaxanthines. And why did they do that? Well, beta carotene is not really found in the retina. In fact, the doses of beta carotene that are used in the AREDS-1 trial were very high, and they've been shown in meta-analysis, meaning that when you examined all the literature, 
to be actually associated with a higher risk of heart disease and cancer. Now, there was no cancer increase. There was no risk of heart disease in the A-RED study, 6,000 patients. So you're safe in taking the vitamin. But certainly there's no logical reason to take a large amount of beta-carotene. They added omega-3 fish oil. One gram of omega-3 fish oil may be very helpful. Again, going back to dietary studies that showed that people who ate a large amount of salmon and other fatty fishes would do very well. So let's go through where we are, where we've been and where we're going, and then we'll go through some of the new treatments so you can see. 1982 was the first study looking at treatment of macular degeneration, and that used the laser. And the laser, unfortunately, was destructive. So yes, we were able to stop new blood vessels from forming, but they recurred about 50% of the time, and they caused some visual loss. It was destructive. In the year 2000, we had Visidine. And until 2005, in December, when macogen was first um, allowed by the FDA to be used, we had no, no other treatments. But it wasn't until 2006 when the results of the, of the Marina anchor trials came out that showed Lucentis was the first drug for treatment of macular degeneration to improve visual acuity. So again, photocoagulation is a destructive. It's used rarely now because most of the time we're able to use other modalities that are non-destructive in treatment. But if you have a lesion that's way far away from the center vision, it's still a good treatment. It's a good alternative. Why is it a good alternative? Because once you're treated, if successful, you don't need retreatments. Visidine came, came about in the year 2000. This was a um, treatment where a dye was infused into your body, and then a laser light, a cold laser, was used to activate the dye. The dye has a preference for new blood vessels. So we were able now to selectively, to some degree, treat the blood vessels that were abnormal. So the dye was activated by the light. It would cause an irritation in the blood vessel wall, which would cause clotting and cause the blood vessel to, in, uh, to involute. And this was very helpful. It did reduce from the natural history. Natural history was to lose about four to five lines of vision, and you'd lose about line and a half to two lines of vision with treatment. And that, once you were stabilized after two years, you, you stayed that way. But I want to point out the curve of this is you started here, and your vision got a little bit worse. Now, submacular surgery was tried. Submacular surgery is where you go in and remove the blood vessels. And we didn't put anything under there, so we had a bare area, and it really didn't show any improvement at all. That was tried. It was a failure. There have been a number of other treatments, TTT, radiation, interferon. I'll talk a little bit about radiation because that's being looked at again in feeder from. Antiangiogenesis was started, um, and VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, was found to be a very important portion of um, the formation of new blood vessels. Vascular endothelial growth factor has a ability to cause new blood vessels to form and cause leakage. Blocking that has been found to be helpful in reducing formation of new blood vessels and, and reducing progression. What happens is that VEGF goes in and activates the cell. It goes in and activates the, the receptor and the nucleus, and I'll show you there's gene expression, and you get leakage and uh, new blood vessels. So if you administer this, you can see increasing leakage, and you can see that just putting a little pellet of VEGF here 
will cause all these blood vessels to form. There are multiple forms of VEGF, and the form that's felt to be pathologic was 165, and that's the form that pegaptinib or macogen looked at. They tried to block just that one because VEGF is necessary in our body for normal development. Um, if you break a bone, you need VEGF. If you, know, if you have a little minor heart problems, you need VEGF. So they tried to selectively take out the pathologic form, which was 165. Uh, pegaptin was administered um, inside the eye as an intravitreal injection. And again, binding here. Here's the results of the study. And you can see, again, this downward slope in the group that was treated, but a worse slope in the group that was not treated. And again, you can see at the end of two years, about a line, a little over a line of vision loss. So about the same as we were seeing with a visidine, perhaps maybe a little bit better, we were able to treat more patients with that. Um, one of the problems we faced in the very beginning was what this lady is saying. I know I didn't hear you, Sonny. Where, you, where did you say you are going to put that shot? Um, getting patients to accept a needle in their eye is not exactly um, something that is uh, you want to do every day, but it became commonplace for people to receive these injections. The next drug that came out was not FDA-approved. It was actually Avastin, off-label use of a drug, very similar to Lucentis, which was still awaiting FDA approval. They are drugs that started very similar courses, and Genentech, which makes both drugs, did an experiment using Herceptin. And Herceptin is a drug that's used for cancer treatment. And when they injected Herceptin into the eye, they didn't think that it penetrated all the way through into the retinal layers where they wanted the drug to be. So they said, we, we should remodel this drug and make it for the eye. So they made Lucentis. Now, Avastin continued um, as an offshoot. It's about 150 kilodalton. It's a pretty big molecule. And the theory of some of the brightest people in the world are, are some of the scientists at Genentech was that 150 kilodaltons was just too big, wasn't going to penetrate the retina, we needed something smaller. Lucentis is 50 kilodaltons. Well, in going back and looking at some of their work, it, it might have been a little bit a wrong assumption because it does penetrate all the way through. That's been proven recently. Avastin goes all the way through into the retina. But certainly there were things that they made. Lucentis four, very short half-life. Um, more affinity maturation, meaning that it grabbed more VEGF than it normally would have. But we came into an era of what we call Luvastin, or, or a problem area. There are advantages of Avastin, and there are advantages of Lucentis. Lucentis is the only drug that's gone through vigorous clinically you know, trials, where we have randomized clinical trials that look at safety and efficacy. Avastin has not, though we're now looking at about 1,200 patients in the CAT trial, 600 receiving Avastin, 600 receiving Lucentis, and we're trying to make that decision. Um, it may last longer. Avastin may last longer. That's a good thing. Um, but, again, we don't have the, uh, the robust safety data. Only a few clinical trials and no randomized clinical trials have been done. This is the CAT trial, and they're doing two different uh, treatment modalities. There are four groups of patients. One group is receiving Avastin or Lucentis monthly. The other is receiving it as needed because there's a great group of people who feel that you don't need it every time. And certainly one shot in about 12 to 15% of patients may be all they need. You don't know that, though. 
and that's a risk. Here's uh, just an example of what happens when you uh, receive the injection. This area of leakage here, this is early, and this is a fluorescein angiogram, so we're trying to determine where it's coming from. This is what they call optical coherence tomography, showing the area of leakage in the baseline vision at 2050. And then if you look at week one, the vision had improved all the way to 2020, and at week at month one, they're 2030, and that leakage, that white expanding area is actually stopped. So this is a very potent medication. Out came the MARINA trial soon after that that showed us that you can actually, remember that, that line I showed you, all the other treatments were going below the bar here, which meant you were losing some form of vision. This is what happened in the MARINA trial. The MARINA trial was aimed at patients with occult disease, patients who had, who had minimally classic lesions, and it showed an actual improvement. In fact, 70% of patients actually had either one letter or more gain. 40% of patients were able to get 20, 40 or better vision. Anchor trial showed similar results. It actually showed um, outstanding results in both the, the 300 micrograms and 500 microgram group. And again, it was above the line showing an improvement of vision rather than a loss. Almost 20 letters, four lines difference whether you received treatment or didn't receive treatment. And again, to reiterate what I said, the letters gained from baseline, zero letters, 70% at a time. 15 letters, which is three lines of vision between 33 and 41%. And some patients even had six lines of improvement. So a patient coming in today can actually have a marked improvement of vision rather than the reduction of visual decrease. So this has made a huge difference in our treatment, and it's given people today who develop this condition a very new outlook on, on what treatments hold for them. So this is what happens at 24 months, 2040 or better, 40% at a time approximately. And just to remind you, three-line losers, the natural history was 70%, with Lucentis 8%, with visidine macogen about 40 to, to 50%. So this was a huge improvement over what we had um, with only about 2 to 6% of people gaining three lines before. Now we had 40% of patients gaining three lines. Here's uh, Lucentis, similar type of patient. This is a classic lesion, and this is an area that you can see the white. You can see some leakage. The black is leakage. This is actually the new blood vessel. It's a type uh, one, and you can see the reduction. Though, even though it looks better it, and continues to look better, the vision doesn't always improve, unfortunately. And sometimes it may take a long time. Still a little bubble of fluid here, despite treatment. I put this slide in because I wanted you to see something. A lot of times people come in, they've received two or three treatments, and they really want to know, well, is this all that I'm going to get back or, or will it continue to improve? And this is an important slide. It's, it's a very complicated slide. But essentially, there are people at month four that had a rapid gain of vision. They gained three lines of vision. But some people, you know, only gained one to 14 letters of vision. And some actually, you know, lost vision, either zero to 14 letters. Still, some of those people, when continued treatment, that lost vision, about 9 to 10% of people, actually went on to gaining three lines of vision. So the fact that you don't get an immediate response does not mean you won't get a response later. So it's important to realize this is a chronic treatment. And this shows a similar result with the ANCHOR uh, trial. 
It's important to realize, just like controlled blood pressure, the medication must be continued at some time interval so that you can't stop this. It's not like, you know, you came in with a cold and you took penicillin, you got better, you don't need to take it again. This is a chronic condition that requires chronic treatment. So if you go to my office some days, it looks like, you know, this is all we do is inject into the eye on every other patient that comes through the door. So the big question is you're going to give me how many injections and for how long. And the answer is we don't really know. Um, in studies that have been done, that have re- patients that receive treatment for two years, monthly injections, 24 injections in a two-year period, 50% of patients required retreatment in the third year by six months. So we know that it's probably a chronic condition that you're going to need to treat for long periods of time, and that's why we're looking in the future for chronic ways of, of treating. Now, this is an important study. This was the peer study that said, well, maybe we don't have to treat monthly. Maybe we can go, you know, treat them three times in a row, get that nice little improvement, and then let's see what happens if we treat them every three months. What happens is that you get this nice improvement in the first three months, and then you lose the effect over the next year by treating them just every three months, whether you looked at them or not. So it requires your doctor to make a decision of whether you require treatment or not, depending on the way he's treating. He may choose to treat you monthly. He may choose to treat you if you're leaking, or he may choose to treat you at some set interval. So let's talk about some of the new treatments that are available that you'll see. So we've talked for a minute about VEGF. We talked about Genentech's uh, Bevacizumab or Avastin, Ranibizumab, and Pegaptinib. The newest one that one that will come out in the near future is the VEGF trap, and I want to spend some time. So if you said to me what's on the horizons of VEGF trap, and that's going to take about two years before it's available because they just completed enrollment, it is um, a drug that's a decoy. Basically what it does is there's VEGF R1 and VEGF R2 receptors, and they took part of the receptor. Now, the receptor is on the cell wall normally. And they made this decoy. So what it does, it goes into the cytoplasm and pulls all the VEGF in that area out. So all the VEGF goes to this false or decoy receptor and can't go to activate the cell. So it's like a little decoy. It is more, has more affinity for VEGF than even Lucentis. It also, de- also has the ability to get placental growth factor, which may also play a role. So it may be stronger than Lucentis. So, again, VEGF goes in, activates the receptor. We saw that the receptor will activate the nucleus, and the process begins. This is the VEGF trap. It's floating around in space here in the cytoplasm. It grabs the VEGF and will not allow it to adhere and and start the receptor going. Very encouraging. Uh, We felt it may last a little longer. They did five different groups, and they found that the group that was receiving two milligrams every four weeks did the best. They had nine letters of improvement at the end of 52 weeks. But the most important thing, I'll show you, this is the result, and it's pretty amazing, very, very nice result. But the most amazing thing was that after the first three injections, the next injection was on average about 150 days later. So you may be able to get a drug that's going to come out that may last three months easily, and you may reduce the number of injections and may have a better affinity for VEGF. There are some other, there's two ways to affect 
new blood vessel formation. We talked about treating the cytoplasm or the extracellular space. There's also downstream where we want to either stop the cell itself or we want to stop what's causing it. So HIF happens to be hypoxic-inducible factor, and there are other growth factors that will activate VEGF. So these are upstream and downstream modulators. They're very complicated. One of them that we're looking at is the mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. And rapamycin is a drug that's used right now is used for uh, rejection. It's an anti-rejection drug. And now we're looking at not only do we want to stop VEGF, but we want to stop the scarring that's associated with the process. So we can control most patients with giving them Lucentis or Avastin. But we have scarring that occurs, and this scarring is what causes the vision to be down. So we want to have the ability to stop that. So a lot of things you're going to look at now that I'm going to show you, the integrins and and rapamycin, all are antifibrotic. They stop the fibrosis. So they'll probably be used in conjunction with Lucentis because, you know, you're talking about a drug that was 90 to 95% successful. Very hard to beat those odds. So this is the mTOR receptor, and uh, it also trying to stop the HIF-1, because if you stop the hypoxic-inducible factors, you can stop VEGF from occurring. So serolimus, which is the rapamycin, stops this, and it stops the gene expression of VEGF, so it's, it really can be an adjunct. And it's been found to be able to be given both in the eye as well as on the outside of the eye, and stops um, new blood vessel formation, fibrosis, and uh, reduces leakage. Integrins are very interesting. Integrins are part of the process that causes the blood vessels to continue to grow. Integrins actually are like um, little, um, almost like grappling hooks that allow you to go to the next level. So if you can stop the integrins, you can reduce fibrosis, you can reduce the uh, progression. Um, they mediate adhesion to the extracellular matrix in between cells that allows it to grow, and um, you can stop the migration and prevent cell death if you can modulate the integrins. There are two drugs that are being developed right now, uh, one by Gerini, one by Alphatech, that are both looking at uh, integrins. The Gerini drug's on hold right now. They're looking for a long-acting delivery system, a six-month delivery system, um, and they're holding off until they can do that. Here's another um, TKI inhibitors. TKI inhibitors are tyrokinase inhibitors. Now, almost every drug company has tyrokinase inhibitors that they use for cancer. Well, the receptors are tyrokinase um, receptors, so if you can inhibit, you would be able to inhibit the VEGF cycle. And various companies have tried either eye drops, two of them have been eye drops, one of them has been an oral medication, and two are given by um, an injection behind the eye, which is very safe and uh, very painless. Um, the results so far have been good but not great. Uh, we have not seen major improvements of vision. Um, a lot of these drugs are being tested in cancer right now. As a matter of fact, there's a big crossover because cancer patients um, many times have a problem because of increasing blood vessels that supply the area. If you could decrease the blood vessels to the tumor or stop new blood vessels from coming into a metastatic area, the tumors would go away. So that's why you're going to read about a lot of things that, that you hear here are also in the tumor literature.
So here we have all the things that we talked about for a minute. Here's the VEGF trap, Lucentis, Avastin, Pegaptinib. We talked about Serliminus. We talked about, there's two siRNA drugs. There siRNA drugs. Uh, the Opco drug was taken off for lack of efficacy. The other siRNA drug uh, is in hold right now. We talked about the TKIs. We talked about the integrins. And there's PDT and radiation. So I want to show you radiation fell into uh, disrepute for a while, but this is what we're doing now. There is a company, or two companies actually, I'm going to show you one that we go inside the eye. And the advantage of this is that this would not require us to continue to give you injections. We know that radiation is anti-angiogenic. It stops new blood vessels. It also has an anti-fibrosis. So if we could get radiation only to that area, we theoretically could stop the blood vessel formation. So radiation is being evaluated, and at least in the early studies, the phase two trials that have been done in Mexico, they were able to control new blood vessels with this form of therapy. There's another study that's ongoing right now that's also looking at um, a different way of delivering radiation. But this is something you're going to hear about, and we participate in these trials. You put that probe inside the eye, and you leave it right over the area for about four and a half minutes. And uh, we're certainly going to wait the uh, results of the trial. So we talked about wet macular generation. Let's talk about dry macular generation. Dry macular generation, what we're trying to do is trying to stop the area of atrophy from enlarging and becoming bigger over the period of time. Now, many times we also may be able to stop the area um, of dry macular generation from going to wet. So about 3.5% of the population 75 years or older will have geographic atrophy. Atrophy meaning that the cells aren't working well. And it accounts for severe vision loss in approximately 12 to 20% of the patients with AMD. So it's not a, it's not a benign condition. And the AREDS formula had no real effect. So that's why we're looking at other ways of treating. So if you have geographic atrophy, many times I'll put you on omega-3 fish oils and lutein because the AREDS formula didn't show any decrease in progression and it didn't show that it stopped it from forming. You can see that as you get older, the incidence of this increases dramatically. Um, less than uh, seven, or 75 years, about 3.5%. Greater than 90 years, 22% of patients will have it. Um, it's not talked about very often because we really didn't have a good, tri you know, good trials going on. Now we have several trials that are um, actively going after this. So one of the problems with geographic atrophy is what's the endpoint? Um, is the endpoint to keep the lesion small? Is it your vision? Um, is it contrast sensitivity, your reading speed? And all these things have limited our ability to go to um, a company and say we want to look at this. There are a lot of drugs that are out there that have looked at this. We talked about nutritional supplements. Um, OT551, which I'll talk to you about, is a topical drop. And that, as of Thursday of last week, stopped their trial for lack of efficacy. So we've had a number of trials that have looked at this, laser to Drusen. And that's why I want to show you this. This is laser to Drusen. This is, um, there were three studies that, that looked at putting laser treatment in the back of your eye to make Drusen go away. So this is a patient, 2050 vision actually improved to 2020 after multiple small laser marks were placed. The Drusen went away. When we looked at all three trials, 
There was no decrease in visual loss or decrease in development of choroidal vascularization. So when I show you Copaxin in a little bit, and it shows the drusen going away, it's good. It's really, it's a good start, but it may not indicate that we're really doing something visually, and I'll talk about that. So this is what atrophy looks like. Sometimes it doesn't progress. This patient has not progressed in about, you know, a year and a half. But sometimes it may progress, and here's what we call autofluorescence. Autofluorescence is a way of measuring the damage. The dark is damaged tissue. The nerve is always black, and the vessels are black. That's normal. But this darkened area in the center and the darkened area over here tell us there's a problem going on. The problem is really the white spots around this, the autofluorescence, because that indicates that this patient may progress. There are different ways you can measure this. You can measure with autofluorescence. You can do a high-speed OCT and see where that area of atrophy is. You can actually measure this area of atrophy very, very clearly. You can see that there's starting to be a change here. This is normal out here and abnormal toward the center where it's thinner, and those cells in that area are severely damaged. The rates of enlargement are symmetrical, so if you enlarge at one rate in one eye, it'll be same in the other eye. And what we're really trying to do is keep it small. If we can keep it small, we can keep the scotoma small, we keep your vision good for long periods of time. So again, this is one of the problems you can see here that this patient had a very small rate of enlargement, whereas this patient over the same period of time, two-year period for all these, had a very large rate of enlargement. And it's trying to identify the people who have a large rate of enlargement, a very fast rate of enlargement, that is very, very important. Also, it's very important to find the endpoint. Here's a patient with severe geographic atrophy, has a small island of good vision, and the vision's 20-20, but yet we know that around that area of good vision, they have severely limited vision. There are the first drugs that were looked at were neuronal survival agents. Their ciliary neurotrophic growth factor was looked at. And ciliary neurotrophic growth factor has been shown to be protective in a variety of conditions, including retinitis pigmentosa. Here's an animal that had been... Uh, that was tested. Here's with the ciliary neurotrophic growth factor. You can see the retina is thicker than this. This is a, the animal itself. And so it's been shown to be protective in a large number of patients, uh, a large number of animal models. In patients, what we do is we implant this. It's made, a little incision's made, and this is tied in. And there are cells in here that liberate and actually make, it's like a little factory within your eye that makes ciliary neurotrophic growth factor. There are other growth factors it can make. It can make brain-derived growth factor. It can make, actually, it can make even a vast and lucentis. These cells are cultured and they're manufactured. So this is really a very high-tech way of delivering medication for long periods of time. And sure enough, the retinal thickness increased, just as you would thought when you looked at those animal experiments where the retinas were thicker. When we measured the retinas with uh, optical occurrence tomography, there was an increased amount of thickening. Does that mean that the patients saw better? They saw a little better, and but not a wowie effect like we would see with Lucentis. So that study is, is maybe ongoing into a phase three trial now. Um, the OT551, as I said as of last week, um, stopped from laugh, lack of efficacy. It was an eye drop that was used. It had multiple modes of action. It was an eye drop that when administered, the esterases would break it down to two active ingredients, OT551 and TPH. Now, it's 
People always ask, is that eye drop really getting into the retina with concentrations that are good? This slide here shows that in the choroid, after 15 minutes, at least in a rabbit, there were very high levels of this. And there have been other drug companies that have looked at eye drops as a modality. Um, the me- method of action is anti-inflammatory and anti-angiogenic, uh, but it's off. Fenretinite's a pill. Um, we said that this, this area of autofluorescence that showed the enlargement, this white around, this dark area, was, um, was bad, and that's lipofusion. And you can control lipofusion by reducing the amount of retinol that would go into the, um, into the pigment epithelium. So here we have um, a normal eye, and it has retinal binding protein and, and transthyretinin. It grabs retinol from your liver and takes it to the eye. And in certain conditions when the patients may have either um, genetic predisposition or other reasons, that can actually become build up and become toxic. And, and the lipofusion leads to APO2E, which actually causes cell death and degradation. So the buildup, this retinol builds up, it becomes lipofusion, and eventually these vitamin A metabolites cause eventual loss of the receptors, and you actually start to lose vision. What the fenretinide does, fenretinide actually grabs the retinal binding protein, blocks um, the ability for retinol to go into it, and is excreted. This other molecule so large it won't go out the kidney, so it's always in your body. If you get rid of the retinal binding protein, you get rid of the ability for this to to show a uh, problem. Copaxin is um, a drug that's used for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. It's given subcutaneously daily in those patients. It was found in Israel to um, reduce the production, um, I'm sorry, reduce drusen, now, again, I told you before, you can reduce drusen with laser, but it didn't show any visual improvement. So it's very important that you understand. This is uh, almost like where's Waldo, but this is baseline. This is after 12 injections. This is curse, uh, courtesy of Dr. Rosen, who's doing some very, very good work in New York, and we may be joining him in doing this. Um, we're waiting for him to get some preliminary data out. But this shows 12 weeks later there is a reduction in drusen, just in a short period of time in this patient. And there's certain drusen that will improve, and, and, and that's rather um, interesting. The GATE trial is a topical drop. It's actually it's a serotonin 1A agonist that's approved in Japan. It's given as a topical drop and is very effective. Complement inhibition is the next real great area. Um, let me just show you really quickly because I want to get to a video in a second. There's complement has been found to occur in drusen. It also may be one of the activating components that occurs in choroidal neovascularization, so it may have a role in dry and wet. There are a number of of areas that have been found to be genetically linked to uh, age-related macular degeneration factor H, C3, C5, C7. All have genetic links to drusen and genetic drusen composition models. There's actor factor D out here that Genentech's going to look at. And what we have is a ability to block C3, C5. There are different companies. I'll talk to you about one that I just presented in New York. This is a deposit. This is given as liquid but gels up very quickly. This turns out to be a chronic release mechanism, which they found in animals, but we didn't know if it was going to occur in humans, and actually has been shown to reduce progression. Future studies include um, 
transplants. Everybody wants to know when are they going to do stem cells. This is what they're doing currently in, um, in Europe. This is removing a choroidal neovascular membrane. This is a vitrectomy. That forceps has just removed the, the choroidal neovascular membrane, the wet macular generation, through a little hole. This is actually a piece of retina. This is the nerve here. The macula is over to the left. This has been diathermized, meaning that there's been cautery applied around this. And this piece of full-thickness retina is now being cut out. Um, these sli- the, this video is courtesy of Dr. Coffey, who um, was doing this, and, and Gene Vandermeers in Rotterdam is doing this. The advantage of this technique is that in patients with age-related macular degeneration, this is part of your retina, so there's no um, rejection phenomenon. You don't need any drops. What, what we've done now is take out this piece, and now we're going to put it through that hole in the retina where the piece of choroidal neovascular membrane was taken out because the cells in that area are gone. So we need to be able to put it in. This will go underneath, and then you have to keep it there because as you start to put fluid in or do an air fluid exchange to hold it in position, as you do that, the piece can migrate out. So you'll see the forcep is kept there to hold it, and then you'll see fluid coming out, which is a heavy fluid that will push this flat, and you want to keep it here so that it doesn't get extruded out. There's fluid going in here. And this patient, actually, this graft will take, um, and there can be some improvement if you catch it very early. They're actually starting to do patients now that have had dry macular generation and wet macular generation. So in summary, hopefully through continued research of both dry and wet, we'll have um, be able to identify the high-risk patients and develop therapies to reduce visual loss. I'll take any questions you have. Thank you. Does anyone have a question? I'll start down here and then I'll come up. Uh, hi, Dr. Boyer, you mentioned the GATE studies, and uh, I was told to try and get into that study. Uh, what do you think of it? Well, the GATE study so far has been very, very encouraging. The animal models that they use, though there's, I will say that you know, there's no good animal model for, mac- for geographic atrophy. Um, we've enrolled, we've had no complications from the treatment. Let's start with that. Um, I think that, you know, if it works, it's going to be a real boon to you because you'll get medication way before. If it doesn't work, I don't think you've lost anything because the drop appears to be totally uh, non-toxic. One of the problems is we've already done um, almost all the patients that, uh, for the time being, that they'll allow us to. The, the, the condition that, you, you know, geographic atrophy, unfortunately, is a condition we have no good treatments for. So that's why when I look, I want to weigh the risks of treatment versus the benefits of treatment. And there's very little downside risk and there's more upside risk. Because at least in animal models, they're very, very encouraged by this. And they feel that there may be um, a benefit. We have so a I think it's here. a good, good, good trial. I mean, I'm not asking anybody to, to go through what I just showed you because that um, about 20% of patients can lose vision with that. That is, um, you know, it's a major surgery, and, you know, what I just showed is exciting because I think I was involved in developing some uh, a piece of equipment 
um, that may be very helpful in reducing complications. That's why I wanted to show that video. You said earlier that lutein filters out blue light, therefore Correct. preventing free radicals damaging the eye. You said it better than I did. Oh. <laughs> Is there anything that can be put on a pair of glasses yeah, they, to they, filter this out? Sure. They, they, they do put UV filters on glasses. You know, um, and they put UV filters in, in interocular lenses, too, for the same reason. There's a lot of question whether, you know, they need, you know, to be uh, blue blockers and things. We're talking about people that usually, um, that may not need glasses, number one, or people who, um, um, you know, may, you know, not wear glasses all the time. But uh, it will increase the pigment. I mean, you can see and measure pigment density. If you eat a lot of spinach, you'll actually see an increased amount of pigment. And it's theoretical, but it seems to hold up that patients who, you, you know, take this do better. Yes. Doctor, you, you um, referenced some innovative work being done in other countries. Mm -hmm. um, how does someone evaluate that? Because you, you talked about... Uh, the VEGF trap being maybe two years off, and for, for patients that don't feel they can afford to wait that long, how would they go about evaluating options in places like Japan, Rotterdam? You mentioned. Well, I just came from Japan. I, I, I can tell you that um, I just came from three days um, in Tokyo where we had the one of the biggest meetings that they have for retinal surgeons. There's not a lot going on. What I showed you is pretty much, you know, the state of the art today. Um, that there's, they've only done a couple hundred patients. You know, your doctor has to weigh the risk versus the benefits. Um, you know, once you do this procedure, it's pretty much done. And, uh, you know, if it's, if, if something a year from now would be better, I'd wait the year. Um, you know, there are times when I think this is going to be beneficial. One of those times would be, we have some patients that come in that have an acute onset of a tremendous hemorrhage. Um, the results have been very dismal, even removing the hemorrhage because the cells in that area are damaged. If you can catch those people early, they've actually gone in, drained the blood out, pulled out the, the membrane, and put in one of these autographs, and they've shown an improvement. Um, a lot of times you'll see people that will have, they'll report 10 patients. And I think you need to go to a doctor who's staying on top of this and is evaluating everything that's being done. Um, like for retinitis pigmentosa, a friend of mine who I know very well is doing some work and using a special uh, drug. Um, I said, show me something, you know, some animal worker, show me something before I put this in a patient. I want to know what the risks and the benefits are. I know the risks of that surgical procedure are high. The benefits are also high depending on how long you've had. If you've had it for a long time, you won't get much improvement. So I think you just have to rely on your doctor's judgment. Are there other questions? If somebody had that laser, if, if, if uh, someone had the laser done to their eyes to see better, how would it affect the immaculate? It doesn't. Now, Lasix is done um, so you don't need glasses to get rid of astigmatism sometimes, but most of the time so you don't need glasses. Yes, ma'am? Uh, did you say the nutritional supplements with the A-RED really don't help dry? No, they don't help geographic atrophy. They do help dry. Oh. I'm sorry. They do help dry. I'm sorry if I said that. But for geographic atrophy, that subsection of dry, it did not help. 
Any others? Well, thank you very much, Dr. Boyer. We really appreciate that. <laughs>